Let me add my welcome to Ben's. Uh, it's good to have you with us this afternoon. Um, let me start with a question. Do you ever feel like your love for Jesus is not as warm or as fervent as you would like it to be? I suspect many of us do. Now, you might be sitting here saying, well, what do you mean love Jesus? I don't know Jesus. You know, just, he's, he's a guy in history. That's, that's totally fine. If, if you're here and you're kind of looking in, almost looking in through the window at Christianity, great. This message, I think, will be really, I hope, will be really helpful for you. But for many of us, we've, we've known Jesus, maybe for months, maybe for decades, and we have a relationship with him, and, and we talk to him, and through his word, he talks to us. And, and we could make it sound all glorious and wonderful, but actually, if we're honest, often we kind of feel like we're just a little bit too cold, like, like there should be more response coming from us, like there should be more love and, and it's not there and, and so what do you do with that? That's the issue that I want us to think about today. Two weeks ago, we started this series, we've called it Walking with Jesus and what we're doing is we're putting on our sandals and we're joining the disciples and watching Jesus in action in Luke's gospel. And so two weeks ago, we thought about the fact that Jesus compassionately draws alongside those who don't deserve his love and his help and his care, but he gives life even in the face of death to the undeserving. And we thought about the fact that it's not something that we can earn by living good lives. It's not something that we can earn by generating kind of impressive faith. It's not something that we can uh, have some sort of merit or qualification for by knowing lots of stuff. Jesus gives to the undeserving. And then last week, we followed that up, and we thought about the fact that actually there is something on our side that does matter, and that is our response to him. Whether we respond to him or whether we reject him actually is significant, which then raises the question that we've got today, what if... I feel cold toward him. What if in my life, I may have been a Christian for many years, but what if I just kind of get frustrated with the lack of, of emotion, the lack of zeal, the lack of feelings toward Jesus? And I know that I'm supposed to love him, and I know that technically I love him, but I don't feel that love. I want to look at two stories uh, today. Actually, I'm going to read one and I'm going to tell you another. Two stories that I hope will help us with this question. I hope it's going to be helpful for you. For me, this has been uh, an incredible few days of, of wrestling with a text and thinking about a message uh, and, and really being blown away for, for me. And so I hope that that doesn't get in the way. Sometimes when people get excited, they just kind of bluster and it doesn't communicate. But hopefully this will be helpful for all of us. So let's look at the story. It's in Luke chapter 7. It's on in one of these church Bibles, page 864. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take the Bible from the table and uh, take it home. We'd love it to be yours. If you put your name in it or something, then we won't steal it back next time you come. But we'd love you to help yourself if you need a Bible. And uh, page 864, Luke 7, and then there's that little number 36 with a title above it that they've added, a, sin, a Sinful Woman Forgiven. So we're towards the end of the chapter. Let me read the story, and uh, we'll try to make sense of it, and hopefully this will help answer the question of why is it that sometimes we're cold when actually we want to be warmer in our response to Jesus. Verse 36 one of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. 
And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So let's pause there and let's try and picture this scene in our minds. We read this and and it's just kind of seems fairly straightforward, you know, someone invites someone and someone else shows up. But actually, there's, there's all sorts of clues within this text that something is not right. As we're going to read on in a few minutes, we'll discover that something very definitely is not right, because Jesus was the invited guest of a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a, a religious leader, somebody who studied the Old Testament like crazy and they knew it and they tried to live up to all the standards and they really were impressive religious people. And so here's this Pharisee and he invites Jesus to his home. And in the Middle East, hospitality is priority number one. I don't want to criticize our culture, but really we don't quite know what hospitality is in comparison to the Middle East. When you invite someone into your home, You would lay down your life for that person. They're your guest. You will guard them. You will give to them. You will honor them. And so typically what would happen is as you arrive, you would be kissed, welcomed into the family. You would be given water and your feet would be washed and they would put some fragrant oil on your head. That's all a little bit weird for us, Uh, but that's because we don't have the conditions they had. In, in their world, the, the streets were dusty and dirty and there were animals around and so feet kind of, they, they would stink. And so when you arrived, it wasn't just a case of kicking off your shoes and you're fine. It was a case of needing to have your feet washed in order for the environment to remain enjoyable. With all the smells that there were outside with all the animals, it would be a, a real blessing to come into a home and in effect to have a little bit of air freshener sprayed on your head, which is really what the oil was doing. And then the kiss, of course. Now, we, we don't do that with the feet. We kick off our shoes. We don't do that with the air freshener. That would be weird for us, wouldn't it? Because our culture doesn't smell quite so bad. And we certainly don't do the kiss thing because we're not Italian. So, you know, for us, this all seems a bit weird. But for them, that was normal. And for Jesus to be welcomed into the home with no kiss, with no oil, with no water, this was, this was a very difficult, awkward situation. It turns out that the moment this woman shows up or shows herself uh, to the group, uh, the Pharisee's response is immediately to start judging. I think that that's an indication that this was a bit of a trap for Jesus. You see, the Pharisees' immediate response is, if he were a prophet. So they're in this mode of testing Jesus. Maybe they came up with this plan. Let's have him over. Let's not do the normal hospitality stuff and then see how he reacts, Mr. Perfect. And so they're, they're winding him up. They're trying to get a reaction. And by leaving out all that hospitality, greeting, and welcome, it's creating a very awkward situation even before the woman comes into the story. 
but the woman makes it extra awkward. Here's a woman that is a woman of the city. She had a certain career choice that you, you know what it is, right? And here she comes, and, and she'd heard that Jesus was coming, and it, we, we'll find out later she was there from the moment he walked in. And it seems like she's so bothered by the way that Jesus is being treated that her reaction is profoundly emotional. She must have heard of Jesus. Maybe she'd encountered Jesus before. Here was the one who come, had come from God who forgives people like me. And she, she loved him. And, and so when Jesus was treated the way he was treated, it bothered her so much that the tears started to flow. She wasn't planning to uh, clean his feet. If she was, she would have had a towel. She had no towel, so she pulled out her hair and used her hair, which is an absolute no way. You don't do that in that culture. You don't loosen your hair. But she did it because she just wanted to dry the feet. And she kissed his feet. She wouldn't kiss his face. That would be scandalous. But she kissed his feet again and again and again. And she took the little alabaster flask of ointment the air freshener that she would have used to welcome men into her home so they could forget the outside world and have their special time with her. And she took that and she thought, I don't need this anymore. And she poured it out on his feet. It's extravagant, emotional, excessive kind of love for Jesus. And it stirred the Pharisees who were sitting around the table judging and evaluating. And it made them ask the question, does Jesus know what is going on inside this woman? Does Jesus know who she is? It's an important question. Does Jesus know who we are? Does Jesus know who anyone is? Well, Jesus was in a, a tense situation now. Because if you think about it, these men had, in effect, created a trap for Jesus, creating an environment where he would be under pressure, and now this woman had stepped in and had gone above and beyond everything they were supposed to do, and she's being extravagant in her hospitality, and it's just messed it all up. You'd imagine that they would be angry with her for doing that, for messing with their plans. And so now the pressure's on. What's going to happen? How is this tension going to be resolved? Does Jesus know that she's a sinful woman? Does he know that he needs to distance himself from her and say, you know what? Uh, it's very nice what she did, but, but you know, I'm not really into that kind of thing. And, and let me just distance myself. Thanks, love. Bye-bye. You know, is that what he's going to do? Or is Jesus going to do something completely shocking? That's exactly what happens. Let me read to you the next bit. Remember, he said to Simon, I want to I say something to you. And then he proceeds to tell him a story. The story goes like this. A certain moneylender, this is verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Let's pause there. That, that story is so short, but it's so significant. Have you ever heard in, in Christian presentations um, the illustration of the, the pass mark? You know, if God's standard is 50 out of 50... What does the Bible say? The Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God, right? We've all fallen short of the 50 out of 50. Maybe you've heard something like this, right? 
And then I think we make a mistake. What we, what we do, which is a mistake, is we say, God's standard is 50, and you might be a good person, and you might have done lots of good things, and you might have given to charity and helped people cross the road and you know, volunteered with your time, but there's something in your life that means you fall short of the glory of God. You fall short of 50 out of 50. Maybe you stole a biscuit. Maybe you stole a paperclip. Maybe you said something in anger once. And of course, everybody goes, well, of course I did. All right, you fall short of the glory of God. Now, that's, that's true as far as it goes, but actually it's got a real problem. For a start, I think it makes God look incredibly petty, right? God is going to look at your life, and you've done this amazing job in all of your life, but you stole a biscuit, and so I'm going to judge you. Is God petty? I don't think so. The truth is not that some of us are 49 out of 50 people, and then there's people like that woman who maybe she did something nice once, so let's give her two or three out of 50. You see, with that kind of mindset, we will always be elevating ourselves over other people because, of course, we're not like other people, are we? Not like those people on the news or those people in the Middle East or the terrorists or the pedophiles or, or, you know, you name it. We're not like that. And so we're okay compared to them. And, of course, we're not good enough. But, you know, we're, we're good, just not good enough. But notice what Jesus says in this story. There's a money lender and there's two debtors. And it's not that one had some money and the other didn't. They were both bankrupt. They had nothing. In fact, one owed 50, one owed 500. Technically, they're equal even though they're not. And isn't that the case for us as well? Isn't it true that before God, every single one of us is bankrupt? We have nothing we can bring, not even a penny that we can pay to him for, for his goodness to us. We are absolutely bankrupt, but even so, there's still differentiation. There's still, you know, the Bible does show that God really gets upset with certain evils. And so, it's not that we're all equally evil, you know, if, you, if you're not a pedophile, not a terrorist, not a murderer, not, a, not an adulterer, whatever, great, that's good. That, that's better than all, doing all of those things. We don't want to give the idea that we're all equally evil, but we are all equally bankrupt. Some people have done terrible things, maybe some of us. But then there's those of us who've done less terrible things, but we're still sinners. We're still at minus 50 Even if we're not at minus 500, we're still bankrupt before God. And you see, Jesus lays this story out for Simon because Simon thinks he's a 49 out of 50 kind of guy. Jesus says, you're not, Simon. You may not be as bad as her, but you're bankrupt. You've got nothing. So which one loves more when their debt is canceled? Simon doesn't state it. You know, by pointing at the woman, he doesn't really want to take the point, but he, he says, I suppose the, the one that's got the larger debt cancelled. Of course, that's true, isn't it? If we realize how big the debt is that has been cancelled, surely our, our love w- would be greater. And that's the point of this story, that one of the reasons I think we struggle with our lack of love for Christ, one of the reasons we feel so cold so often is because we don't really grasp or we forget or we don't understand quite how much he has forgiven us, quite how much the debt is that has been canceled. And we tend to think, I'm doing okay. I'm not as bad as this person. 
and I'm not as bad as them. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He could have left the story there and uh, carried on with the evening, but he takes it to a whole new level. And what he does next is absolutely shocking. The next thing Jesus does is he turns to the woman, facing the woman, talking to her, but really he's talking to Simon. And in doing this, he does two things. One, he honors the woman. He doesn't dismiss her. He doesn't kind of turn his back so that she's hidden. He doesn't, you know, get her to sort of slip away. He makes her the focus, but actually what he's doing is he makes himself the focus because what he does next is he rebukes Simon. That, that seems okay for us. We know we, we're quite good at rebuking people we're not looking at, but that's not what's happening here. What's happening is that Jesus is rebuking the host. You never do that in the Middle East. The host would graciously do all that they would do. And even if all they gave you was a stale little bit of bread and a a bit of dodgy roast goat, you would still celebrate it as if it's the best meal you ever ate. It's just kind of the way the culture goes. But instead, Jesus rebuked Simon. Why? Why would he do that? Let me read it as we ponder the question why, and then I'll tell you what I think. So, verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Therefore, she loved much." But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If we could enter into that room, if we could be there, even for a moment, we would feel the atmosphere. It would be like you could cut it with a knife, the tension created uh, as this woman does what she does and the Pharisees are saying, does he know what, what she is? Does he know what she's done? And now Jesus ramps up the tension, but he turns it. He turns it from her and he brings it onto himself because by the end of this, this little rebuke, notice what they're saying? Who is he? They're no longer saying, oh, does he know who she is? Now they're saying, who is he who who even forgives sins? As you read through Luke, this is something that Luke gives us multiple times, where Jesus does something to turn the anger of a crowd away from somebody and onto himself in order to set that person free. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is ultimately going to do at the end of the gospel when he goes to the cross, turning the anger against the sin of humanity from us onto him so that we can go free. It's a beautiful little moment. And he rebukes Simon to make Simon angry with him and take the attention of this woman who Jesus keeps talking about how much she loves him, who Jesus has loved first. The way he cared, the way he reached out, the way he lived his life, the things he communicated meant a woman like that felt loved and welcomed and honored by a man like him. This is a powerful story. And I think the reason that it's so powerful is because so often we fail 
to feel the force of what we're seeing here. We, we fall into the trap of being like Simon. Does Jesus really know what's going on? And I'm okay. I, I, I you know, don't need much forgiveness, just a bit. I'm a 49 out of 50 kind of a person. And the truth is we're bankrupt. And if we want to, if we wonder why is it that, that my heart is sometimes cold where it should be on fire for Jesus, maybe part of the reason, it's not the only reason, but maybe part of the reason is because we forget or we don't even realize how much it is that we've been forgiven. Let me tell you another story. I'm not going to read it. This is really the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of a prince and a prostitute. It's a story of a prince sent into a world that is gross and, and hideous and evil and who came to marry a prostitute and he pursued her and he wooed her and he drew her attention to him and then he proposed. And in his proposal, he maybe used those words from the Anglican uh, marriage ceremony, you know, where the, the rings get exchanged and it says, with my body, I honor you. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe those are the words that are used. And in effect, what he's saying to her is this, everything that I have, my name, my reputation, my wealth, my riches, my righteousness, my good standing, I want to give it to you. And I want you to give me everything that you are and everything that you have. You give that to me. And she might say, well, I don't have anything. All I have is guilt and, and shame, debts. I, I want that. I want you, and I want you to have me. You see, that's the story of the Bible, of how God sent his son into this world to win for himself a bride out of the fallen, gross mess of humanity. Today, we, we get to see on YouTube sometimes the most extravagant proposals, you know, where it's all the, you know, the people joining in and the music and the scenery, and often we look at that and go, ooh, that makes me feel bad. Don't let my wife see that one. You know, she'll think I was not very impressive. But, you know, you see these things, but the ultimate proposal ever is when Jesus went to the cross. And he hung there and he bled and he died and he gave his life to say, I love you this much and I want you to have me and I want to have you. I want you to be part of my bride. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And all that you are and all that you have, give and share with me. And the great exchange takes place when we become a Christian. We bring to Jesus nothing but, but shame and guilt and debt. And we receive everything that he is. His relationship with his father becomes our relationship with his father. We receive his righteousness. We receive his, his forgiveness, his innocence. The, the, all the goodness that, that Jesus has to offer is given to us. Now, let me push that story on a little bit. Imagine the prince and the prostitute get married and they go off on their honeymoon and they come back and they're living their lives. And the days become weeks, become months, become years. And during that time... On various occasions, at various times, they're, they're in a room together, maybe the kitchen, maybe the, the office, wherever, but maybe she opens a drawer, and there in the drawer, she, she's pulling some papers out, and she sees a certificate of debt, a, a notice, you need to pay. And he's right there, and he says, oh, what's that? Oh, nothing. She covers it and pushes it back and closes it. 
up in the bedroom, sorting through stuff in the closet and, and going through, finds an old box with, with some string on it. And she pulls it out and opens it and looks inside. And he says, hey, what's that? And she, she looks inside and it's like a skeleton in the closet. It's something from long ago that, that she'd forgotten or, or hidden or, or just something gross. And she, it's okay. And she buries it. And there on the desk, there's piles of paper. And on these paper, many of them, there's tipex all over it, white out, just covering the debts that were written there. And when he comes in and uh, glances at the desk, she hides them under something else. What happens in their relationship? Gradually, without meaning to, a coldness enters, a, a sense of distance, a sense of, if he found out, then maybe he wouldn't love me. You see, this isn't just the story of the Bible. This is our story. This is my story. Some of us have some gross things, skeletons in the closet, and we've buried them long ago, and we want them to stay buried. And somehow we think that Jesus doesn't know, when in fact he wants us to take those things out and to hand them over and say, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me, even for this. There's the gross things, the minus 500 things in the closet, but there's the minus 50 things too, isn't there? The kind of sins that are more justifiable and the more self-righteous, the kind of whitewashed pieces of paper where we think, oh, that looks fine. I can get away with that. Or, or maybe we don't even realize. Maybe we just justify. We just kind of say, you know what? That, that's understandable in those circumstances after she said that and after he did that and the way they treated me and because of my past and you know what? And we, we justify and we cover over and we paint the paper with white out tipex thinking that somehow that deals with the issue and maybe gradually over time God puts his finger on those things and says, you know what? Even that's a sin. Even the way you take pride in that, it's, it's a sin. And as a Christian, over time, we gradually come to feel more and more aware of deeper and deeper issues in our lives. And so that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need to come again to Jesus week by week and say, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Because he's said that. He said that to us on the cross, bleeding. He's given us everything and he's paid for everything and he wants us to hold nothing back but instead to bring our debts, no matter how big or how small, no matter how gross or, or how, you know, excusable. He wants us to bring all of our debts and lay them at his feet and accept his love and accept his forgiveness and accept that he wants to embrace us as his bride. He can take anything we can throw at him. He can take anything that we've done because it's already been paid for. Why is it that sometimes we feel cold toward Jesus? I suspect it's because sometimes, maybe often, we bury things. We hide things. We cover things. We justify things. And we somehow think that he doesn't know. And if he, if he knew, he wouldn't love me, so let me put on a good show for him. But the truth is, actually, Jesus knows already, doesn't he? He knows everything you've said and done and thought, every place you've been, every finger click of your mouse. He knows and all he asks is, trust me, give it to me. Give yourself to me because I want to give myself to you. We're going to have 
communion. Communion is just a, uh, in a way, it's just a simple thing. It's just bread and, and grape juice. And it's something that Jesus asked his followers to take uh, and to, uh, to take in order to remember what he's done for us on the cross. And the way I want us to do that this week is, is this. I want to just lead us for a few minutes to, to, to pause and to think, maybe to allow God by his spirit to just put his finger on things in our lives. Maybe things that we've never confessed to him before. And, and just to, in a sense, collect up the, the pieces of paper, to collect up the debts. And then to give them to him as we take the bread and the juice at the end. So let's just take some time just to kind of quieten our hearts and think about not ourselves and our sins as if that's somehow going to be healthy in itself, but in an appropriate sense to say, Lord, would you show me if there are things that I need to hand over to you, things that because I'm not handing them over, they're making me kind of feel a bit stunted, feel a bit distant, a bit cold. Are there things in my life that you want me to hand to you? Maybe we could start just by thinking, let's go the big stuff. Let's go skeletons in the closet. Let's just ponder that. It may be something from years ago, something that you haven't thought about, or maybe you've thought about it every day, but you've kept it buried, something you did, something you shouldn't have done. Maybe it was in school. Maybe it was when your parents weren't looking. Maybe it was at university. Maybe it was when you first had a car. Well, it may be long ago, it may be recent, but it may be uh, whatever it is, it's something that if it were to come out, you would feel horrifically guilty. And maybe you've been holding it back from Jesus. Let me just give you a moment to pause and ask God if there is some, I suspect you don't even need to ask. Maybe it's already right there in your face, an image, a, a memory, a thought. But let's just take a moment and consider the debt that that is. Maybe for, um, maybe for some or maybe even many of us, it's not one skeleton in the closet. Maybe there's a whole load of them, like a pile of debt notices, one on top of the other, and, and they represent uh, uh, something in our lives in the past or even still today that just keeps on coming back. We, every time we, 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 we promise that we'll never do it again and we swear that it's finished and, and it's, there's another one and there's another one. And no matter how much we, we wash with soap or we wash ourselves metaphorically and we promise and we commit, we just can't shake it. It just seems, seems to keep on coming back. Maybe there's a pile of the same kind of debt for some. Let's just pause and, and maybe talk to God about that.
And then there's those tipexed ones, the, the whitewashed ones, the things that, that we don't mind people seeing because from our perspective, somehow they seem justified and okay, but actually, you know how it is that tipex never looks that good. And actually, from God's perspective, it, it doesn't matter how much we paint it, we're hiding something that no matter how much we justify it, it's wrong. It's a minus 50 instead of a minus 500, but it's a sin nonetheless. Maybe it's pride. Pride in how we live our lives. Pride in the things we don't do. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's uh, judgmentalism. Maybe it's criticizing. Maybe it's gossip shared for prayer. Maybe it's something that's very churchy and very acceptable, and yet it's not acceptable before God. It's wrong. And underneath it, if the tipex is peeled away, there's a debt there. There's, a, there's a, a hardness of heart there that is profoundly inappropriate, profoundly uh, different from what God is like. Things that we take pride in, things that we think we're justified in, responses that we believe are justified based on the actions of others. Maybe there's something there. Let's just pause and ponder that kind of debt notice. I don't know how big the pile of papers has become in the short time that we've had, and maybe it would be good to continue to do this at home later with our Bibles open praying, but, but I would imagine that there might be quite a stack of papers there. And some of them will be minus 500 type papers, and some of them will be minus 50s. Some of them gross and, and hideous skeletons in the closet, other things that actually until now we've thought, that, that's okay, when really it's not. In Luke's gospel, Jesus several times identifies two sinners with the two extremes, a Pharisee and a tax collector. A man with two sons, one who goes off into the far distant country and squanders it all while the other one stays close to home and is full of himself. And both of them are sinners. And here we've got minus 50 sinners and minus 500 sinners. And maybe some of us would say, you know what, I'm both I'm a, five, I'm a minus 550 sinner because I, I do the self-righteous stuff and I've done the gross stuff. And then we come to the bread and the juice as an image to remind us of what Jesus has done. Of how he said, okay, let me take the first move. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And so we take the bread and uh, it's just bread. Doesn't, nothing mystical or magical happens, but as we take a piece of the bread, it's like a, an image of the body of Christ being presented for us to be given, to be torn as a substitute in our place. It's a wedding proposal. So as I pray and give thanks for the bread, why don't we just uh, pass the, the plate along where we are, and if, you, if you're a 
in the family, if you're, you know, Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you want to participate, please do. If you're, if you're a guest, you know, you're like, I'm not sure, I don't know where I stand, just let it pass by. There's not, no, no embarrassment there at all. But let's just take some bread and I'll pray and give thanks for the bread. And as we do this, there's nothing special happening in a way, but, but it's the most special thing of all. It's where we get to say, okay, Lord, all that I am, gross and guilty and sinful and wretched and poor and miserable, all my debts... I share with you. Let's pray. Father, it is the most bizarre exchange that has ever been conceived that your perfect son would die in the place of a sinner like me. And you offer through Jesus to accept and take all of our debts, all of the sins, all the stuff that we've done, the things that we've buried, the things that we've hidden, the things that we've forgotten, the things we haven't even realized were wrong. You take those debts from us and you give us your life and your righteousness and your goodness and your forgiveness. And so as we take this bread, we just want to say thank you for dying in our place, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's give thanks for the, the juice as well. We can make sure that we have in, enough. This, there should be enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you that you took the notice of debt that was against us. Just as if we were to hand you every debt of everything we'd ever done, every sin that we'd ever committed, every thought, every every, uh, idea, everything about us that's dirty and wrong. Lord, if you were to take every one of those and write them down on a piece of paper, it was as if that were taken and nailed to the cross and wiped out with your blood. Thank you so much for dying for us. Thank you for cleansing us, for inviting us into your family. And as we take this juice, we remember the blood that you shed, not just for the sins we've brought to you the day we became a believer, but for all of them. Every single last one of them, you have cleansed it all. And we give you our thanks and we give you our debts. We give you every sin that has come to mind and we just want to say thank you for giving us all that you are and all that you have. Thank you for the juice that we take in remembrance of your death. Amen.